Hello again. It's been a while since my last SoundCloud podcast because I found this to be a somewhat unreliable platform, so I'm going to try it again today with a post for the happiness class on John Stuart Mill. We'll be discussing Mill's autobiography, his On Liberty and Utilitarianism, and uh, try to indicate some of his views on happiness. We'll be asking questions like, to what question did young John Stuart Mill's emphatic no result in, or rather reflect, a personal crisis in his life? What does he say is the best theory of happiness for the great majority of us? What poets and composers made Mill happy? What are we unwarranted in saying to one another? How is utility commonly misunderstood? What is his reply to the criticism that there's not time to calculate the impact of specific actions on happiness. We'll discuss questions like, how do you think we can best strike a balance between external, public, and social ends, and the internal culture of the individual? Do music and poetry play a part in that for you? What else? Is it best not to ask yourself whether you're happy? Is this an abandonment of the old Socratic quest to know thyself? or a condition and prerequisite of such knowledge? What poems and other literary works and authors and music or musicians make you happy? Have you or would you ever intervene or interfere with another person on behalf of their happiness? What does useful mean to you? How is it distinct from pleasurable? How often do you contemplate the happiness impact for yourself and others of your actions and choices? In chapter 5 of his autobiography, Mill speaks of the crisis in my mental history one stage onward. He says, For some years I wrote very little and nothing regularly for publication, and great were the advantages which I derived from the intermission. It was of no common importance to me at this period to be able to digest and mature my thoughts for my own mind only without any any immediate call for giving them out in print. Had I gone on writing, it would have much disturbed the important transformation in my opinions and character which took place during those years. The origin of this transformation, or at least the process by which I was prepared for it, can only be explained by turning some distance back. From the winter of 1821, when I first read Bentham, and especially from the commencement of the Westminster Review, I had what might truly be called an object in life to be a reformer of the world. My conception of my own happiness was entirely identified with this object. The personal sympathies I wished for were those of fellow laborers in this enterprise. I endeavored to pick up as many flowers as I could, by the way, but as a serious and permanent personal satisfaction to rest upon, my whole reliance was placed on this, and I was accustomed to felicitate myself on the certainty of a happy life which I enjoyed, through placing my happiness in something durable and distant, in which some progress might be always making while it could never be exhausted by complete attainment. This did very well for several years, during which the general improvement going on in the world and the idea of myself as engaged with others in struggling to promote it seemed enough to fill up an interesting and animated existence. But the time came when I awakened from this as from a dream. It was the autumn of 1826. I was in a dull state of nerves, such as everybody is occasionally liable to, unsusceptible to enjoyment or pleasurable excitement. One of those moods when what is pleasurable at other times becomes insipid or indifferent, the state, I should think, in which 
Converts to Methodism usually are when smitten by their first conviction of sin. In this frame of mind, it occurred to me to put the question directly to myself. Suppose that all your objects in life were realized, that all the changes in institutions and opinions which you're looking forward to could be completely effected at this very instant. Would this be a great joy and happiness to you? And an irrepressible self-consciousness distinctly answered, No. At this, my heart sank within me. The whole foundation on which my life was constructed fell down. All my happiness was to have been found in the continual pursuit of this end. The end had ceased to charm, and how could there ever again be any interest in the means? I seemed to have nothing left to live for. At first, I hoped that the cloud would pass away of itself, but it did not. A night's sleep, the sovereign remedy for the smaller vexations of life, had no effect on it. I awoke to a renewed consciousness of the woeful fact. I carried it with me into all companies, into all occupations. Hardly anything had power to cause me even a few minutes' oblivion of it. For some months the clouds seemed to grow thicker and thicker. The lines in Coleridge's dejection, I was not then acquainted with them, exactly described my case. A grief without a pang, void, dark, and drear, a drowsy, stifled, unimpassioned grief, which finds no natural outlet or relief in word or sigh or tear. In vain I sought relief from my favorite books, those memorials of past nobleness and greatness from which I had always hitherto drawn strength and animation. I read them now without feeling, or with the accustomed feeling minus all its charm, and I became persuaded that my love of mankind and of excellence for its own sake had worn itself out. I sought no comfort by speaking to others of what I felt. If I had loved anyone sufficiently to make confiding my griefs a necessity, I should not have been in the condition I was. I felt, too, that mine was not an interesting or in any way respectable distress. There was nothing in it to attract sympathy. Advice, if I had known where to seek it, would have been most precious. The words of Macbeth to the physician often occurred to my thoughts. But there was no one on whom I could build the faintest hope of such assistance. My father, to whom it would have been natural to me to have recourse in any practical difficulties, was the last person to whom in such a case as this I looked for help. Everything convinced me that he had no knowledge of any such mental state as I was suffering from, and that even if he could be made to understand it, he was not the physician who could heal it. My education, which was wholly his work, had been conducted without any regard to the possibility of its ending in this result and I saw no use in giving him the pain of thinking that his plans had failed, when the failure was probably irremediable and at all events beyond the power of his remedies. Of other friends, I had at that time none to whom I had any hope of making my condition intelligible. It was, however, abundantly intelligible to myself, and the more I dwelt upon it, the more hopeless it appeared. My course of study had led me to believe that all mental and moral feelings and qualities, whether of a good or a bad kind were the results of association, that we love one thing and hate another, take pleasure in one sort of action or contemplation, and pain in another sort, through the clinging of pleasurable or painful ideas to those things from the effect of education or of experience. As a corollary from this, I had always heard it maintained by my father and was myself convinced that the object of education should be to form the strongest possible associations of the salutary class associations of pleasure with all things beneficial to the great whole, and of pain with all things hurtful to it. This doctrine appeared inexpugnable, 
but it now seemed to me on retrospect that my teachers had occupied themselves but superficially with the means of forming and keeping up these salutary associations. They seemed to have trusted altogether to the old familiar instruments, praise and blame, reward and punishment. Now I did not doubt that by these means, begun early and applied unremittingly, intense associations of pain and pleasure, especially of pain, might be created and might produce desires and aversions capable of lasting undiminished to the end of life. But there must always be something artificial and casual in associations thus produced. The pains and pleasures thus forcibly associated with things are not connected with them by any natural tie, and it is therefore, I thought, essential to the durability of these associations that they should have become so intense and inveterate as to be practically indissoluble before the habitual exercise of the power of analysis had commenced. For I now saw, or thought I saw, what I had always before received with incredulity, that the habit of analysis has a tendency to wear away the feelings, as indeed it has when no other mental habit is cultivated, and the analyzing spirit remains without its natural complements and correctives. The very excellence of analysis, I argued, is that it tends to weaken and undermine whatever is the result of prejudice, that it enables us mentally to separate ideas which have only casually clung together, and no associations whatever could ultimately resist this dissolving force, were it not that we owe to analysis our clearest knowledge of the permanent sequences in nature, the real connections between things not dependent on our will and feelings, natural laws by virtue of which, in many cases, one thing is inseparable from another in fact, which laws, in proportion as they are clearly perceived and imaginatively realized, cause our ideas of things which are always joined together in nature to cohere more and more closely in our thoughts. Analytic habits may thus even strengthen the associations between causes and effects, means and ends, but tend altogether to weaken those which are, to speak familiarly, a mere matter of feelings. They are, therefore, I thought, favorable to prudence and clear-sightedness, but a perpetual worm at the root both of the passions and of the virtues, and above all, fearfully undermine all desires and all pleasures which are the effects of association, that is, according to the theory I held, all except the purely physical and organic, of the entire insufficiency of which to make life desirable, no one had a stronger conviction than I had. These were the laws of human nature by which, as it seemed to me, I had been brought to my present state. All those to whom I looked up were of opinion that the pleasure of sympathy with human beings and the feelings which made the good of others, and especially of mankind on a large scale, the object of existence, were the greatest and surest sources of happiness. Of the truth of this, I was convinced. But to know that a feeling would make me happy if I had it, did not give me the feeling. My education, I thought, had failed to create these feelings in sufficient strength to resist the dissolving influence of analysis. While the whole course of my intellectual cultivation had made precocious and premature analysis the inveterate habit of my mind, I was thus, as I said to myself, left stranded at the commencement of my voyage with a well-equipped ship and a rudder, but no sail, without any real desire for the ends which I had been so carefully fitted out to work for, no delight in virtue or the general good, but also just as little in anything else. The fountains of vanity and ambition seemed to have dried up within me as completely as those of benevolence. I had had, as I reflected, some gratification of vanity at too early an age. I had obtained some distinction and felt myself of some importance before the desire of distinction and of importance had grown into a passion. And little as it was which I had attained, yet having been attained too early, like all pleasures enjoyed too soon, it had made me blasé 
and indifferent to the pursuit. Thus, neither selfish nor unselfish pleasures were pleasures to me, and there seemed no power in nature sufficient to begin the formation of my character anew and create, in a mind now irretrievably analytic, fresh associations of pleasure which any of the objects of human desire. With any of the objects of human desire, these were the thoughts which mingled with the dry, heavy dejection of the melancholy winter of 1826 and 27. During this time, I was not incapable of my usual occupations. I went on with them mechanically, by the mere force of habit. I had been so drilled in a certain sort of mental exercise that I could still carry it on. When all the spirit had gone out of it, I even composed and spoke several speeches at the debating society. How or with what degrees of success, I know not. Of four years' continual speaking at that society, this is the only year of which I remember next to nothing. Two lines of Coleridge, in whom alone of all writers I have found a true description of what I felt, were often in my thoughts, not at this time, for I had never read them. But in a later period of the same mental malady, work without hope draws nectar in a sieve, and hope without an object cannot live. But then he discovered music, and he discovered Wordsworth. More on that later. <laughs>